two things went wrong, basically. Yeah. So. That's right, yeah, Bram, Bram Ali. Yeah. Someone thought I was called Bob Marley once. That's kind of really weird. You know Bob Marley, a famous reggae singer? Yeah. I said, oh, this is Bram Marley. What, Bob Marley? <laughs> that was very, very interesting. Anyway, let's get down to business. So let's see what happens. Okay, so here we go. It's so number one. Dear Ajahn Ramali, you got the name right, even that's excellent. Okay, it's a good start. Uh, thank you for your clear teachings. Uh, okay, I haven't really started yet, but anyway, let's see what, <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> Could I ask you what make you most happiest being on the Buddhist path? Uh, what are you most proud of achieving? Okay, proud, okay. Um, <laughs> so... This is, um, ah, okay, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. I just take that one. What is this? Hot water? Coffee. Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. My defilements are known worldwide. That's kind of a <laughs> This is a problem. <laughs> All right, so let's talk a little bit about what is um, the thing that makes one of the most happiest, happiest about being on the Buddhist path. And there's many ways you can think about this question and think about the answer to this. Uh, and uh, one of the, um, I think one of the most important things for human beings uh, is that we have a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, a sense that life is actually going somewhere. Uh, yeah? When you have a sense of purpose to your life, uh, that is very foundational to make you happy, to feel good about yourself. Uh, if you feel that everything is going the wrong way, uh, if you feel that you are losing your money, you are getting divorced, everything is heading in the wrong direction, uh, it is almost as if your sense of purpose is being dissolved uh, and your meaning in life doesn't really, you don't really have any meaning anymore for many people. Uh, and that's why people despair, they see the, uh, you know, the wars around the world, they see the uh, problems with the climate, they see all of these kind of things. Uh, and then the kind of purpose in life, the meaning, that we're going somewhere positive, uh, disappears, and then you have a real problem uh, so one of the most powerful things about being a Buddhist, uh, or being someone who practices the Dhamma, is that you have a very clear sense of purpose in life. Uh, you have a meaning. You're actually going somewhere. Uh, you're doing something with your life that you know will give you some sense of purpose, happiness, joy, contentment, all of these things that makes life meaningful. Uh, it is there. Uh, yeah. And this is the wonderful thing about this whole idea of having a spiritual practice, is that regardless of what happens in the world, uh, regardless of whether the whole world just goes to the dogs. I always feel sorry for the dogs when I say that because the dogs don't want to inherit this kind of terrible world. But anyway, you, you know what I mean. <laughs> so the world goes badly. You still have a sense of meaning because you are going somewhere within yourself. Yeah? And this, to me, is the most powerful thing about the monastic life as well because you leave the world even more aside. Yeah? It means that the, the purpose, the sense of meaning is very powerful and very strong. Yeah? And this is one of the things I really enjoy and like about the monastic path. So a sense of meaning. So how do we, and how do we fulfill that sense of meaning? How do we know that we are achieving it? Because one thing is to have that kind of theoretically, but how does it actually feel that you are achieving that sense of meaning? How does it feel personally? 
And the way you achieve that and the way that monastic life is meaningful uh, is that you have a sense of growth. Uh, you have a sense that you actually are changing over time. Uh, so if you look at yourself and what you were like 10 years ago or 20 years ago or whatever, uh, you can see that you have gone somewhere. You have grown in a sense in qualities. Uh, you are more kind. Uh, yeah? You have less ill will to people around you. You have more clarity in your mind. Uh, you have all of these qualities that are actually growing inside uh, and when you see that happening over time, yeah, you see that you're becoming better. You think, yay, <laughs> something is working, right? You become, it's very, very fulfilling when you see that happening. Yeah, because this is fundamentally fulfilling aspect of being a human being. Yeah. Whereas all these other, other things, all the external things in life, they are fulfilling to some extent. Uh, not anywhere near the way you fulfill the sense of purpose and meaning when you actually are building up inner qualities. Uh, and this is why monastic life, some people think it's really boring to be a monastic. Actually, it's not boring at all, yeah? because you're doing something incredibly meaningful. Yeah? Even if you have nothing to do, it's not boring. Yeah? That's kind of the weird thing about monastic life. Yeah? So it, this is kind of a wrong idea. Yeah? So this is what you look at. Instead of looking at, uh, sometimes people think too much about achievements uh, or attainments. Yeah, they think, I'm going to come to Jhana Grow, I'm going to practice with Ajahn Brahm. Yeah? I'm not going to leave until I have a Jhana or whatever. Yeah? <laughs> and you're going to have to stay a long time, right, probably. <laughs> but anyway, but whatever. But that's the wrong way of thinking about things, uh, yeah, because that doesn't really work. That is not how you get anywhere. Uh, you don't have that kind of uh, crazy goal. You have more the idea of general incremental growth. Uh, and if you have a general and incremental growth, eventually one day you will get where, uh, to something very, very meaningful, uh, even all the way to the end of the path. Uh. All right. Okay. <laughs> is that a polar bear or what is it? Uh, <laughs> not sure. Okay. Looks like. Does he have a name? Is it just a uh, No? Okay. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, it has been asked before, uh, where is kindness on the Eightfold Path? Uh, can you please elaborate again how kindness is embedded in right intention, right motivation, with much respect? Uh, so kindness uh, is in many places on the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, yeah, it really starts with the idea of right view. Uh, the idea of right view is to understand why kindness matters. Uh, and this is why when you become a stream entry, when you kind of come towards the very end of the path and you see the Dhamma, why you can never actually do anything bad again, uh, is because you understand the power of kindness through direct experience. Uh, and you know that every time you do something bad, even having a bad thought, uh, you know that you're letting yourself down. Uh, do you want to let yourself down? Uh, do you want to be your enemy? Uh, or do you want to be your own friend? You want to be your friend, right? And the way to be your own friend, uh, and this is one of those beautiful sayings in the suttas, uh, this is King Fasenadi. Uh, he went to the Buddha and they had this particular conversation. Uh, and the way to be your own friend is to be kind because then you are actually, you are the one who benefits from that more than anyone else. Uh. And so kindness starts with right view. And this is one of the things that I think is very often underestimated on the Buddhist path. Uh, really understanding what this path is about, internalizing it, not as an intellectual thing, uh, but as a felt thing. Uh. You really feel powerful that kindness is incredibly important uh, yeah it is at the front of your mind or at the back of your mind always there uh, and so whenever you 
do things in the world, uh, that mindfulness reminds you of the importance of these things. Uh, and that is what right view is about. Uh, so from that right view comes right intention, uh, right? So develop the right view. Uh, understand the world in the right way. Uh, understand why kindness is so important for everyone uh, and also for yourself. And then uh, things kind of happen automatically. Uh, then you have the right motivation or the right intention or the right aim or the right purpose or however you want to translate Samma Sankappa, the second factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. And once you have that right intention, you start acting accordingly. Yeah? So you have then Samma Varcha, you start speaking with kindness, you avoid the bad things. Yeah, it's hard, but it can be done. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's very hard, right? To be kind all the time is really hard. We can be at time maybe 90% of the time or 95 or even 98 but all the time is really difficult. And then from that comes the Sama Kamanta, the right action. Then you have the Sama Ajiva, which is the right livelihood. And then you have the Sama Vayama, which is the right effort. And the Sama Vayama is actually a very important part as well of this idea of kindness. Because Sama Vayama is defined in the suttas, the right effort, as doing, as inclining the mind towards overcoming the bad qualities and developing the good qualities. There's actually four parts to it, but that's roughly what it is about. Yeah? Overcoming the bad and building up the good, but as internal qualities. So this is why you're dealing directly with the, with the mind. Yeah? Changing your mind, changing the way you think about the world. And that is a very important part of kindness. Because if you, don't, if you don't think in the right way, it's very tiring to always be kind, right? Because you always have to go against your mental inclination, in a sense. But if your kindness comes from your heart... It's automatic, yeah? So those people who are really kind in the world, it's usually because they are kind inside. Yeah? Not everyone, but usually that's the case. Uh, and so developing the right way of thinking is very important. Uh, and how do you develop the right thinking? Yeah? One of the things you may notice if you are very sharp and you're very clear about what's happening in your mind, uh, watch your mind when you think something. Yeah? Say you think a kind thought. Uh, why are you thinking that kind thought? Uh, where does it come from uh, and if you're very sharp, you will see that it arises from a certain perception. Yeah, you have a perception about a certain person. You like them, you see something good in them, you see something positive. And from that positive perception arises a thought of kindness. Yeah? If you think something not so kind about someone, right? that happens as well. Has anyone here who has never had a bad thought? <laughs> Difficult to find in the world, right? So, but when you look, look at something which is not so kind, again, you look at where does it come from? And it comes from a perception, a negative perception of a particular person. And then the negative thought arises. If you're very sharp, you can see this in yourself. And these perceptions, perceptions are very much at the kind of the beginning of what you might call the perceptual sequence. In the, in the Buddhist suttas, you have these beautiful sequences that show you how the thinking mind works. There's a very well-known sutta called the Madhupindika Sutta in the Majjhimanikaya 18, the uh, simile of the honey ball. Yeah, you can check it out uh, if you have a chance, Majjhima 18. And according to that sutta, it shows you how thoughts arise, yeah, where they come from. Uh, and it starts off with kind of having a sense impression, yeah, the eye and the sight coming together and the consciousness arising based on that. Uh, and from that comes a feeling, from that comes a perception, uh, so perception happens almost immediately. As soon as you have a contact with the world, uh, as soon as you have some kind of sense perception, uh, perception arises. Uh, so it is very, very early on. And from that perception comes the vitaka, which is the thinking. Uh, yeah? And then comes the, uh, 
uh, papancha sanyasanka from that papancha sanyasanka it's, it's it's exactly what it sounds like yeah it's kind of proliferation uh, papancha doesn't that word sound it sounds like proliferation right papancha it just sounds it has the right kind of feeling to it yeah. and so and then the kind of proliferation just means that kind of thinking mind is going on forever kind of thinking about all kinds of things uh, but the idea here is that perception is one of the very early things in the perceptual sequence. So sometimes we can stop right there and ask ourselves and kind of say, okay, my perception is wrong. This means everything else is going to be distorted. So how can I change that perception? And one of the ways of changing the perception is to go back to right view again, as I was talking about before, right? Because when you develop that right view, the way you relate to the world, the way you perceive other people will change according to that right view. So again, you come back to right view. Right view and right perception are very closely related to each other. The more of right view you have, the more you will perceive the world in the way, aligned with the way the Buddha saw the world. So it all comes together in this way. So, so kindness is actually a very, you know, it's a very, very important part of the Buddhist path. And it's very almost all-encompassing the first six factors I've just talked about of the Noble Eightfold Path are very much about moving the mind in that direction. Then comes the Samasati, which is the seventh factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. And that is also, in a sense, about kindness. It is about abandoning the kind of really refined hindrances on the path. Yeah, That happens at Samasati. And then Samasamadhi, well, that's kind of where you go into some very deep states, and that's where you are kind. Yeah? These are states of kindness uh, because your mind is entirely pure. You can't really do anything bad anymore uh, once you have some samadhi. Uh. So kindness is so important. Uh. Once you have kindness, then the meditation works. Uh. If your meditation doesn't work, uh, it may mean that you're not kind enough yet. Uh. <laughs> this is, does not mean, I'm not telling you off, this is kind of, it's very hard to be really, really kind, right? Uh, so you should not feel discouraged because of that. Uh. Rather, you should know, okay, I'm kind already, but I can do even better. That's what you should think. So be kind to yourself, be compassionate to yourself, and then you can develop even more kindness based on that kindness and compassion. All right. So uh, before I forget my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Okay, next question. How long have you known Ajahn Brahm? How has it changed over that time? Has it changed this way? Apart from gaining weight and accumulating more value, how has it changed? Okay, he has, um, in some ways, he is very. Uh, I've long known Ajahn Brahm for um, 30 years. Uh, and uh, I already heard about Ajahn Brahm before I came to Australia, obviously. I was in the UK, I was in some of the monasteries over there. And I heard Ajahn Brahm and I knew straight away, this is my teacher. It was kind of weird. I knew this is where I want to go. And uh, there's many reasons for that. But uh, one of the reasons I felt that he spoke with an authority about Buddhism that no one else I'd heard of before spoke about the Buddhist teachings. Uh, you got this feeling of someone who really knew what they were talking about. Uh, someone who had some kind of read understanding of these teachings. And it's actually very difficult to find that in this world. It's surprisingly hard. And sometimes someone comes across as really genuine with real understanding as if it comes from personal experience. That was kind of the feeling I had with Ajahn Brahm. 
and also he had a lot of kindness at the same time. Yeah? That's a very powerful combination. Wisdom and kindness uh, coming together is very, very powerful in this way. Uh, and uh, yeah, so there were a few things like that. And so I just called up Ajahn Brahm and I said, can I come to Australia? And he said, yes, and that was it. I was off to Australia. <laughs> it's true. That's how it happened. Uh, yeah? it's, kind of, it's weird, isn't it? Uh, it's actually kind of strange because the whole way that I ended up as a monk is really kind of unusual. Is it unusual? I don't know. I think it is unusual because I, was, uh, I had done some meditation before. But I didn't really know all that much about Buddhism. I knew a little bit, not that much. And then one day I decided I want to visit a monastery. But I didn't know any monasteries, right? I was living in England at the time. So I called up the Buddhist Society in London. I just went, first of all, I went to the white page. It's the telephone directory, B-U-D-D. Okay, Buddhist Society. Okay, sounds good. Let me call the Buddhist Society, right? So I called the Buddhist Society. And I asked, are there any monasteries there? <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, there's this Amravati and Chitras. Check those out. And so I went to those monasteries. And that's how I started my monastic life. So I just a phone call to a random Buddhist organization. And that's how I ended up becoming a Buddhist monk. It's kind of weird, isn't it? And then another, another random call to Ajahn Brahm, and that's how I ended up here. And I've been here ever since. So that's kind of how, I, how this happened. But um, so how has Ajahn Brahm changed? I think in, in some fundamental ways, he hasn't really changed that much. Yeah? He's always had a very kind of strong character, a very kind of clear idea about what he thinks the Dhamma is incredibly independent. He's one of the most independent people in the world. Uh, he will, the world says A and he, he will say negative A. Yeah, he will do the exact opposite if he knows it's right. Uh, yeah? It's very powerful independence. Uh, and uh, he's always been a very good meditator. Uh, and you can tell that yeah? when you know somebody well. Uh, you can say, you can, you can tell because uh, you're around him you know, and he will be sometimes very shiny and sharp. Uh, and you just know because you're around someone like that. Uh. So he's always been kind of exceptional. Uh, but uh, he was more, in the early days, he was a bit more firm, yeah? He wasn't as soft as the teddy bear yet. <laughs> now, now, now he's more like this teddy bear. But in the early days, he was more like, uh, kind of, he can be quite strong, yeah, very firm. Uh. And when you have a mind of samadhi, you have a very powerful way of talking to people. So it's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, it's like kind of, uh, it's like being talked to someone who has a very strong mind uh. And uh, so that has changed. It's become very kind of more, more gentle and more kind of much more easygoing in a sense. And much less interested in arguments and discussions. Uh, in the early days, you could discuss with him and he would always defend himself to the end. He would never give an inch. That was kind of one of his characteristics as well. <laughs> as well yeah? This was his view. This was his way of uh, looking at things. Uh, but he's not, not interested anymore in that. Uh. Is that Ram Arahant? Is that, that's for you to find out, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not for me to say. Well, the, the thing is that um, uh, it, it's not very helpful. Yeah, it's not, for, First of all, you don't know whether I know. You have no idea whether I know. I can tell you what I think, yeah, but is that going to be the truth? As soon as I say something, you're going to doubt what I've said. right? That's kind of the reality of things. So you never know. And uh, even if you ask the person themselves, they may get it wrong as well. Overestimation is very, very common in the world. People think the Arahants, they think the stream mentors, they've got anything at all, just ordinary people. Yeah. And uh, very, one of the very uh, dangers, high dangers in the Buddhist world is also for people to project onto teachers. Uh, yeah? So they project, they see this monk, and they think, oh, that's a cool monk, he must be an Arahant. 99% uh, of the time, it's not an Arahant, right? It's almost always wrong. Yeah? And so uh, all I can say is I've stayed with Ajahn Brahm for 30 years uh, 
So I kind of voted by staying here. Yeah? So this is kind of my vote of confidence in Ajahn Brahm. Uh, but, uh, but to actually say anything specific, I don't think is very useful. Uh, yeah? So you just watch. Uh, and if you see good qualities, if you see something positive, uh, then hang around. Uh, if you see him do something crazy, then ask him what's going on there <laughs> and see what happens. Uh, yeah? I have never seen Ajahn Brahm do anything crazy, so I think it's very unlikely. But uh, yeah. All right, let's move on. Okay, this meditation process uh, always follows the same sequence. Uh, I, after the calming of the breath, followed by Piti Sukha, before uh, seeing the Nimittas, uh, or the sequence can be random. Uh, um, not really, it has to be pretty much that sequence. Uh, I mean, the sequence can happen quickly, it can happen slowly, huh? but you cannot really get to a nimitta without having joy. Yeah? This is kind of one of the fundamental aspects of meditation practice. So you want to find that joy. Huh? And to get that joy, you have to be reasonably peaceful, and you have to have a reasonably balanced and positive mind state. Huh? So you have to have the sila together with the, uh, a degree of peace. Huh? Yeah? And from that, very often, the joy may arise. Huh? And then from that joy, as the joy and the peace develop further, then the nimittas arise. So there is a method to this. And, if, and if it doesn't have that sequence, usually it means that it's not the real deal. Yeah? These things are supposed to be arise in that way. In fact, the reason why the Buddha talks about these qualities, and he talks a lot about joy and happiness and a lot about tranquility and these things, is because these are the ways that you know whether your meditation is going well. Yeah, these are the basic things, the most important things. Are you feeling peaceful? This is number one. And are you feeling joy and happiness? This is number two. These are the two kind of main qualities of meditation practice, peace and joy. The more peace and joy you have, the better you are doing in your meditation. This is how you judge it. You don't judge it by nimittas. You don't judge it by the lights in the mind. You don't judge it by insight, because insight is very deluding. You don't really know whether you have insight or not. You judge it by the peace and the joy and happiness that you have. And this is what you find throughout the suttas, that these are the, uh, the kind of the um, markers yeah, for whether your meditation is going right or not. The deeper your meditation, the more peace. The more profound the joy, uh, the more delightful the bliss. Uh, yeah, this is what is going on there. All right. Uh, dear Ajahn Brahmali, could you show us the funny faces uh, you were making with Ajahn Brahmali? Funny faces, okay. Was <laughs> okay, that makes more sense, okay. Uh, while Ajahn Brahm was interviewed, I, I, I remember Ajahn Brahm told me that uh, today, that I supposedly made some funny face. I can't even remember that, to be honest with you. It must be uh, some random thing here. Yeah. So I have no idea. No, uh, I, I'm not going to try to make any, any kind of uh, random faces. I, you, watch out. Yeah, maybe you see some funny faces one day. That's, that's usually what, it has to happen more kind of spontaneously to be fun, I think. Yeah. Maybe I need some more coffee. <coughs> <laughs> Okay, Ajahn Brahmali, good to see you again. Yeah, nice to see you too. I'm not sure who you are anyway, that's, that's fine. Uh, uh, so far, I, haven't, I have not been able to get deep meditation. Please give us some suggestions on how to get deep meditation. <laughs> yeah, okay, so that, that's all right. One of the things that you will notice is that um, 
A lot of people who go on retreats do not get deep meditation. In fact, the majority, I would say, don't get that. Uh, it also depends on what you mean by deep meditation, how deep, and all of these kind of things. Uh, what matters the most is you come here, you learn something, and you're making progress. Uh, and you're able to do something which then will uh, kind of lead to more good meditation in the future. Uh, that is what matters. Uh, yeah, so if you enjoy the talks, if you learn something about the Dhamma, uh, if you uh, uh, get some ideas about what you should be doing next, uh, then uh, um, you're on the right track. Yeah. So just pick some things up. So what should we do? So this is a good question right here. So what should we do to make deep meditation? Uh, and uh, the most important things is the thing that we talked about just before. Yeah, remember, you, it's important to be happy and tranquil. Uh, that's where deep meditation comes from. Uh, so how do you become happy and tranquil? Uh, well, the first thing is not to try to create, to make the happiness. Don't force it. Don't try to squeeze it out of your mind. They are all going to be happy or whatever. That doesn't, that doesn't work. That's kind of counterproductive. The happiness and joy should come from relaxation, from just being, from just being at ease. That is where the real happiness should come from. It should arise by itself. It should arise out of the good qualities within you. And so that is really the answer. If you want to be happy... The way for that happiness to come about is because you feel good about yourself. You feel at ease with yourself. You feel that you have lived well. So it comes back to this idea of kindness again. Living well, treating other people with compassionate understanding. Understand that even the so-called bad people in the world, actually they don't know what they're doing. They're just deluded. So you have to have compassion even for those. It's very easy to kind of watch the news and get upset about things because people are killing each other and people are doing all kind of crazy stuff. But that's not really a solution to be upset about anyone because everyone, we're just hurting each other in this world and everyone is deluded and everyone is just silly and we don't know what we're doing. And so you start to have more compassion, more understanding and more kind of kindness for everyone because you know we are trapped in this suffering which is very unpleasant. And what is remarkable, I find, that even though we are trapped in the suffering because we've been born into this existence, uh, still you find much kindness in the world. Uh, yeah, people still have the ability to have good intentions. Uh, people are still moving in the right direction. Uh, and so then you can have compassion but without despairing because you know that actually there is also a movement in a positive direction at the same time. Uh, if you just see the suffering in the world, uh, then it's very easy to despair. Yeah, to think, oh no, there's so much suffering in the world, then you get depressed. Uh, but actually, very often, behind the suffering, there is goodness. Uh, behind the suffering, there is uh, uh, even happiness and joy. Uh, and uh, you can see this sometimes. And I, I've always been kind of interested in what happens in very difficult situations. Uh, and sometimes when people are put in very difficult situations, uh, the best part of people come out. The good part of people comes out. Yeah, because you have to. You have no choice anymore. If you are in a war zone or whatever, sometimes you become incredibly kind and caring and compassionate because you know there is no other choice. The world around you is crumbling. People are dying all around you. And suddenly something awakens inside of you and you start to become compassionate and kind. Like the paradox of happiness. Yeah, kind of weird. You become happy in the weirdest situations. If we live in societies that are very stable and secure, yeah, we get afraid of everything because we are afraid that our stability is going to be so vulnerable and it's all going to fall apart at any time. Yeah, this is kind of the danger. And then we become complacent and we become frightened and we become, become really stupid sometimes by living in very, you know, when things are going too well. And then when the wars come, it gets kind of really bad. But then when the war really happens, then you 
you just forget about all of that uh, and you start to focus on people and you start to become kind and you do the right thing. Uh. It's weird how sometimes we become complacent when things are going too well. Uh. So, um, yeah. So just um, come back to the idea of living well, yeah, living with kindness. And actually this is already very, very challenging here. Yeah. And it's very, very hard to do this kind of, you know, all the time uh, because uh, um, our mind is so changeable. Uh, we get conditioned by all sorts of things. We have to deal with all kinds of people. Uh, and it can be very difficult to always be kind. Uh, and so I always say to people that to be able to be kind, uh, you have to ensure that you have a, gen- you have a diet of Dhamma talks, yeah, good Dhamma talks uh, that you live on. Uh, yeah, it's a nice kind of way of, if you eat Dhamma, then you are kind of on the right track. Yeah? It keeps you nice and thin as well. Yeah? So you have the Dhamma as your, your main food, yeah? food for the heart, uh, and then you keep that in, uh, and you practice that. So come back to the Dhamma teachings. Uh, come back, remind yourself of what really matters. Uh, remind yourself of what is important. Uh, find a teacher who you trust, a teacher who inspires you to live well, uh, and then you're going to be on the right track. Yeah? So it's actually very simple. The Dhamma is really simple. The hard part is in applying it. That is the hard part. Uh, but what we are supposed to do is actually very straightforward. Uh, All right. <clears throat> Dear Ajahn, may I know how to enjoy silence when it is quiet and just some buzzing noise in the background? Um, how to enjoy the silence? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> how can you not enjoy silence? No, I'm... Um, you just uh, well, silence is really about you know you have to. I think you have to have a degree of inner silence to kind of enjoy the outer silence, uh, because if your mind is very busy, uh, it means that you are kind of you um, you are probably attached to that to some some degree, yeah, because you, you're, you're kind of holding on to that busyness in the mind. The mind is just running around thinking about all kinds of things. Uh, and when you have the outer noise, that kind of helps the mind to be active and the mind feels at ease because the inner mind and the outer world kind of match each other, yeah? So you kind of are at ease because of that. So I think to enjoy the outer silence, you have to create more inner silence, first of all. And the inner silence is created by practicing this path. They're coming back to all these factors again, enjoying what is going on. And uh, one of the things, of course, one of the important things is also to notice uh, the beauty of these qualities. Uh, very often we don't understand the power and the beauty of these things. Uh, yeah, we think that being distracted by things, we think that the world outside is very interesting or whatever. Uh, but actually there's far more happiness and far more positive things to be found in the peace of the mind uh, than to be found in all the external things on the world. Uh, so sometimes you have to look at it in the right way. Uh, and you have to feel, what does it actually feel like? Actually not craving, not being driven around by the will, actually feels quite nice. This will is like a slave driver. It's always driving me around, doing all kinds of things. Does that feel good? I can never really relax. And in the sutta, as the Buddha says, he uses the word like tanhadasa. Tanhadasa means you are the slave of craving. Yeah? Restlessness is, like, uh, is called being like in slavery in the suttas. You're enslaved by restlessness. Why? Because you can't stop. Restlessness and craving is driving you. And if you try to stop, it won't allow you to stop. It won't allow you to rest. So it's driving you on. And so why is it so hard to see that? And one of the reasons why it is so hard to see that is because we identify with that craving. We identify with the doer. 
And because you identify with the doer, doing feels nice. Yeah? You feel like you're expressing yourself right by doing it. Yeah? So stop identifying with the doing so much. Yeah? Identify more with the knowing, just the awareness of things. Yeah? I am the awareness. Yeah? I'm just the observer of the world rather than the doer in the world. Yeah? And the more you identify with the doing, yeah, the closer you are to enjoying samadhi, because samadhi is really that identifying with the doing. Yeah? Ultimately, you want to go beyond, sorry, identifying with the knowing. Yeah? Ultimately, you want to go beyond that as well. Yeah? But in the meantime, that's a good, uh, you know, you change your identity to something more refined. Uh, that is a positive thing here. Yeah? So just feel the peace. Uh, yeah? Go for a walk. Yeah? Don't try too hard to enjoy the peace. The more you try sometimes, uh, the more kind of further away it is. Uh, so just walk around a little bit. Uh, don't push yourself too much. Uh, yeah, don't think that you're going to have to get your money's worth. The money's worth is not getting, it's not gotten by sitting on the seat, you know, many hours. Money's worth is just by having a good time, enjoying yourself. Uh, that is the way. And suddenly one day you feel peaceful. You think, wow, where did I come from? Uh, and very often it comes out of the blue. The conditions somehow come together. Uh, one of the conditions is that you are at ease and not trying. Uh, another one, the environment is right. Uh, another one is a certain thought that arises at that time that you are just, uh, you know, that you are just enjoying what is going on or whatever. Uh, and then it happens. Uh, and if you want it to happen again and again, uh, keep practicing this path. Uh, keep practicing kindness. Uh, kindness is really the clue, the critical thing to everything on this path. Uh, and everything comes together here. Uh, <clears throat> Dear Ajahn, uh, could you share some words of wisdom and advice for the lay people who appreciate and yearn for a life of renunciation and practice uh, but are shackled by family obligations? Uh, how do we skillfully navigate through our lives that are resulting from past illusions, cause and conditions? Thank you kindly. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah this is a nice question. Uh, and uh, this is... Uh, Sometimes the case, yeah, you kind of have a feeling that you know where the real happiness is to be found, uh, but then you are kind of held back by the obligations that you have in life. Uh, and um, this is, uh, so then you have to kind of deal with it skillfully here. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, the answer is always to, uh, uh, you know, the thing is that the spiritual life uh, is really about our attitude at any time, any moment, uh, and if you have the right attitude at the right time, then you're practicing the spiritual path uh, wherever you are, uh, whether you are in lay life, uh, whether you are as a monastic or whatever. It's about what you're doing right now. Uh, that is what really matters. Uh. And so just uh, you know, make whatever you have to do, make that onto, uh, part of your spiritual life, uh, everything. Yeah. How can you practice these things in daily life? Yeah. And uh, as you do that, uh, you will find that you can make progress even in lay life. It's not, maybe not as easy as in monastic life, uh, but you can certainly, if you have the p very powerful intention, it looks like you have a very powerful intention to do so, uh, then keep on doing it in, uh, uh, in lay life as well. Uh. And uh, one of the, um, kind of the beautiful advice that the Buddha gave in the suttas, uh, and this is an advice that I try to practice in, in my life, and I really would recommend you to try as well. If you really think that spiritual life is what life is really about, uh, if this is what really matters, uh, then make all your decisions in life uh, with that as the guideline. Uh, yeah? Every decision you make, yeah, make that as a guideline. So ask yourself, okay, you're going to have a new job, uh, yeah? or you're going to move somewhere, or you're going to do whatever it is. Uh, 
Is it going to be helpful for my spiritual practice or is it not going to be helpful? Which job is going to be more useful? Yeah? Which job is going to make me less stressed out? Don't take the, most, the one that kind of makes you more stressed. And then you, because you're stressed, you become angry people because stress leads to anger, right? You know what it's like. Yeah? Do things. If spiritual life is number one priority, make sure that you, all the other factors of your life are kind of um, set up to support that spiritual path. And then you are on the right track, yeah? So make your decisions with that in mind. And as you make your decisions with that in mind, things tend to start to fall in place. And then you can actually do more in your, in your ordinary life. And remember to keep yourself inspired by doing the right things. Give yourself a chance every now and again to take a retreat. One of the great things about going on a retreat is that you find out how your practice is going. Are you really succeeding with being kind or not? Is it really working? Is it giving rise to the kind of mind states that you want to have? And that's what you find out when you come on retreat. Yeah. How is your meditation this year compared to last year, compared to 10 years ago? Yeah. Some of you have been coming here for many, many years, so many, a long time, which is wonderful. It's wonderful to see people coming again. It's great to see people are committed to this practice. But ask yourself, what is it like this year compared to last year? And... Are you making progress? If, if there's no progress, there's a reason for that. Uh, yeah? And then you kind of do something with that uh, to ensure that maybe next year it is a little bit better. Uh, if it is getting better, uh, great, well done, you're on the right track. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Dear Ajahn Brahmalya, thank you for taking the Q&A tonight. Uh, does mindfulness deteriorate with age? Many thanks, Anmeta. Does it deteriorate with age? Um, it depends what you mean by mindfulness, yeah? because mindfulness is, uh, is a word that has, many, uh, has different meanings in the suttas. It has two main meanings. One is meaning is the meaning of recollection, uh, of memory, and the other meaning is the idea of present awareness. Uh, and both of them are very closely related to each other. Uh, and... Uh, in terms of present awareness, it doesn't really deteriorate with age, yeah? because you can always, unless you have maybe Alzheimer's or whatever, but generally it does not. You can always be aware. You can always be in the present. But what does deteriorate is often the, the memory, and that can have to do with the brain. Yeah? It has to do with the body deteriorating, and because the mind is dependent on the body to some extent, when the body deteriorates, the mind will also be trapped by that body, and so, yes, you will lose some of your abilities, some of your faculties will decline, uh, and your memory will become worse. Uh, could you get Alzheimer as an arahant? Uh, pro- probably, yeah, because it's a brain thing, yeah, and because the brain of the arahant is also trapped, or the mind of the arahant is also trapped in that brain, uh, even the arahant could probably, I think, get Alzheimer's, uh, yeah. And so uh, they're probably very happy with Alzheimer's. No, it doesn't matter, yeah, the past is gone, okay, whatever, great. Uh, but um, <laughs> so... Uh, uh, so I think the answer is uh, yes and no, depending on how you look at it. Dear Ajahn Brahma, thank you so much for coming here and teaching us. I felt like winning the lottery to meet the greatest on this retreat. I heard the five aggregates but not fully understand. Could you please explain mental formations, perceptions, uh, Tomorrow will be the last day of this retreat. Could you please kindly advise us on how to adjust our five senses and awareness from retreat mode to sensual world? All right. So there's a lot here. So, 
So let's see. So first of all, again, nice to meet you as well. And uh, the five aggregates, what are they? Okay, so what they are, they are your experience. Yeah. So your experience right now, that is the five aggregates. So what are you experiencing right now? You probably have a feeling. Yeah, maybe you are enjoying this. Okay, happy feeling. You're not enjoying it. Bad feeling. Neutral. Falling asleep. Okay, neutral feeling. Yeah. Uh, so this is the feeling, right? Uh, then perception. Perception is like whatever you are. It's, it's like your understanding of the situation. Uh, your ability to see what is going on. Yes, yeah? so you perceive people. You perceive a room. Uh, you perceive Dhamma teachings, yeah? These are perceptions. You're making sense of it. That is perception. Perception is how to make sense of the world. So perception is a very important part of, the, uh, of what it is to be human because without perception, we couldn't make sense of anything here. It would just be a mass of colors and a mass of blur, blurry sounds and there would be nothing we can make sense of. So perception is what makes sense of the world. That kind of uh, gives us an idea of what is happening here. And uh, mental formations is a very unfortunate translation. Uh, and I think Vicky um, Bodhi should be uh, told off for choosing such <laughs> a translation. Because it does, what does it mean? I mean, I've been a monk for 30 years. I still don't know what it, mental formations mean. It's kind of a weird word. Uh, how can anyone make any sense of, a, of an expression like that? Uh, and uh, recently he has been using, I think, uh, 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 volitional activities or willed activities, uh, as a translation for sankara, sankara being one of the five khandhas. And that is where we're getting closer to what it means. Activities, yeah? the will, the intention of the mind. In other words, the operation of the will. That is what uh, uh, sankara is about. Uh, Ajahn Sujato, he translated as choices. That's his translation for sankara. So every time you choose, uh, you're making a decision about something. That is an intention, yeah? That is when you are using your will, in a sense, to go in one way or another way. You're making a choice. And so um, that is really what sankharas are about. So you can notice the mind, and you notice this in your meditation practice. If you get a little bit of peace, the deeper your peace, the less there is of the will, the less activity there is in the mind. Yeah? The sankharas are dying down, the will is dying down, the intention is kind of being left behind. So that is the idea of sankhara. So whenever you think about the five khandhas, the five aggregates, bring it back to your experience. Yeah? What am I experiencing right now? That is the five khandhas. Don't make it into some kind of intellectual exercise or trying to divide the world up into five kind of things or whatever. It is directly related to experience. And so when you, what you find in your meditation is that the five khandhas are changing. Yeah? They are becoming different. New feelings are arising. Old feelings are disappearing. Yeah? Some perceptions are ceasing, other perceptions are arising. The will is gradually going. The rupa, the form, yeah, the form is usually related to the body. Form is gradually disappearing. And so when you come out of your meditation and you reflect on it afterwards, you think, oh yeah, this, this was ceasing, this was coming to an end, this was kind of disappearing. I don't know if you know the famous Anapanasati Sutta, Buddha's discourse on mindfulness of breathing. It talks about calming the mind, calming the mind in 12 stages. And the last four are about insight. And those last four are about insight is anicca, impermanence, viraga, fading away, niroda, cessation, patinisagga, kind of giving up. Yeah? So this is what we're looking for afterwards. You go through a meditation sequence, you look back on the process of what happened, and what you see is that you see things fading away. 
Have you noticed that in your, you must, you must, I'm sure some of you have noticed this in your meditation, how when you are more peaceful, the reason you are more peaceful is because things have faded. Yeah, what has faded is your thinking mind has disappeared to some extent. Your body is disappearing a little bit. It is no longer as agitated and as troublesome as it, as it often can be. Yeah. Um, you, you feel more generally still within. Yeah, there's a sense of peace going on there. So you can see that things are fading away. And this is actually the ground of insight. And when you see that things are fading away and you feel more peaceful, you feel more happy because of that, then you know that those things were rubbish. Yeah, they were rubbish kandas. This is a new expression not used before. <laughs> you throw away the rubbish kandas and you keep the good parts of the kandas. Yeah? And then, you, then the good parts start to seem like rubbish. You throw those out and you get even higher kind of aspects of the good kandas. And this is how you see the kandas in operation through uh, your experience of meditation practice in this way. Yeah? So, um, yeah. So tomorrow will be the last day of this retreat. Could you please kindly advise us how to adjust our five senses and awareness from retreat mode to the sensual world? Um, don't try too hard to, you know, to be on, uh, to keep whatever peace you have got. Don't try too hard to do that because you won't be able to do it. Just go with the flow. Yeah. So tomorrow, when you kind of come out of this, just kind of go with the flow. But don't, uh, you know. If you feel like being peaceful, you don't want to be too much part of the crowd and stay a bit to one side. Yeah? If you do what is comfortable for yourself, uh, you don't have to be super social straight away or anything like that. Uh, do whatever feels normal and feels kind of uh, adequate. But don't try to keep the peace uh, because the whole idea of coming on retreat is to build up the peace on the retreat. Uh, yeah? That's kind of the whole point of this. Uh, and when you're not on retreat, uh, you build up other things. You build up the things that support the retreat for the future. Uh, so um, just uh, maybe tomorrow, just ask yourself, well, what have you learned on this retreat? Uh, yeah, tomorrow morning, what, are the, what have I achieved? Uh, and then make a kind of a strong, firm uh, feeling or a strong view of what you have achieved yeah, to, so you can remember this. Uh, you remember it for the future. Uh, because when, if you remember these things for the future, uh, yeah, then it will actually will drive you and make you come back again for retreats in the future as a consequence. Uh, so make a clear kind of, uh, have a clear awareness uh, of what you have achieved uh, so as to imprint that in your mind uh, and then you will have a greater motivation to come back again in the future. Uh, it's always useful to remember what these things are, why these things are important, uh, why they're happy, how they are happy uh, and be clear about that. Uh, uh, and then you understand more about the nature of life and the khandhas and everything. Yeah. Dear Ajahn, when there is a light, I can hear the sound and it will disappear after some time, then comes back again. Uh, but at the same time, the light keeps changing. Is it possible or is the sight I, I sense? Also, I feel both of my palms uh, are warm. Thank you. Um, okay, so uh, I, again, the idea, if you see a light, uh, yeah, remember that what the Buddha talks about the most time is not actually about lights. Uh, when he talks about meditation, he talks about joy and peace. Yeah? These are the two main things. Uh, 
So lights are nice, but lights are very uncertain what they mean. They can mean many different things. Sometimes we create these lights in our mind. Some people are very creative minds and they see all kinds of lights all the time. Yeah, you just close your eyes and you see lights. And it doesn't mean necessarily all that much. Yeah, or people have to see kind of all kind of realms sometimes and they see I was reborn here and there because they kind of think they have seen various kind of things. But these things are very uncertain, some of these lights and some of these images. And how you know that you have a real light is by the joy and the peace that arises with that light. And the greater the peace, the greater the joy, the more powerful that light is going to be and the more it is going to be the real deal. In fact, in the uh, suttas, uh, there's, there's only a few places where these lights are talked about. Uh, and uh, it, yeah, they are called obasa. Obasa means like a brightness or a light. And rupa, rupa means form. So the idea that they have a shape and they have a light. But usually the Buddha just talks about joy and happiness and peace. And that is what matters. So uh, focus on that. And if the light arises out of that, then great. Then you are on the right track. Yes, you can sometimes hear things. Yes, sometimes the, you know, one of the things that you find when your samadhi gets stronger is like the noise or the sounds kind of get a bit further away. It's as if you are kind of going into a cocoon and the world feels further away. That is usually a good sign that things are going right. Yeah? So, uh, but you can still often hear sound if it is a loud sound. You may even hear, feel the body a little bit. You feel the breath a little bit, for example. Yeah, this can still happen at this stage. So... Uh, yeah. Okay, dear Ajahn Brahmali, what did the Buddha say about cosmology? Are there, are there other universes and realities? <laughs> um, all right, so uh, <clears throat> the Buddha said some very interesting things about uh, cosmology yeah, and uh, what he uh, one of the things that he says, and it's kind of weird, because you think the Buddha lived two and a half thousand years ago, he didn't have any telescopes, didn't know anything. How, how he, on Earth, or how on Mars, I'm not sure which was the right word, he was talking about cosmology, how on Mars did he know about these things? I'm not sure. But one of the things that he says is he talks about, well, there is like the, the world system. The world system is like the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun. Yeah? So that's like a, a solar system, in a sense, right? And then he says that actually there's not only one world system, there's a thousand world systems. It's not just a thousand world systems, there's a thousand to the second power world systems. Not just a thousand to the second power, there's a thousand to the third power world systems. Yeah? So he's talking about like a billion solar systems. Yeah? How does he know? How, how can he possibly know these kind of things? And it's very fascinating, but that's actually right there in the suttas. And each of these systems, solar systems, they have living beings with them. Yeah? They have... Uh, yeah, human beings, they have animals, they have various kinds of classes of devas and all kinds of things. And probably aliens, right? Because aliens are what they have on these other solar systems. By definition, they're aliens because they're not part of humanity, so they must be aliens. But I think they probably, they probably look a little bit like us. Yeah? They're not as kind of dangerous and weird as you see in science fiction movies. That's what I reckon. Because we kind of get reborn different places in the universe and all these kind of things. So the Buddha says that all of these things are out there. And he says that there are uh, beings there, so you know we should expect that one day. Uh, apparently, there is a lot of evidence these days coming out about the UFOs and things. You sometimes you read about the news, and uh, the Buddha basically said this two and a half thousand years ago. Yeah, that that's what we can expect, and we can expect probably eventually to see life on these other planets. So, um, 
does it talk about other universes and realities? It does. This is basically how, how it talks about things. It doesn't really say that there is uh, other universes, uh, but it says that there are other solar systems with uh, lots of beings out there. That's kind of essentially what it says. Uh, and uh, that is kind of extraordinary enough, uh, I reckon, uh, that he actually says that. Uh, and he also talks about, there's one very interesting sutta where he talks about the earth burning up because the sun is kind of expanding. He talks about, it talks about seven suns, but it's not entirely clear whether it's, I think it means seven stages of the sun. Uh, and he talks about the sun kind of expanding and eventually the, the earth burning up. Yeah, isn't that kind of weird? How does the sun, Buddha know that the earth will burn up in the future? Well, now we know it is true, right? We know that eventually the sun will expand and the earth will burn up. But the Buddha is actually saying this uh, uh, two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, there's some kind of extraordinary things in the suttas. Uh, and if you ask yourself, well, how did he know that? Uh, and you start to look at the evidence, uh, there is very little, um, you know, very difficult to kind of understand this from any ordinary way of thinking about the world. Uh, yeah, in a sense that this was added later to the sutta, that doesn't make any sense because yeah, we have ancient uh, manuscripts of this suit is going back a long way. That doesn't, you know, someone has added it later on, doesn't really fit. Uh, there isn't really any good explanation for how these things can be in the suttas, apart from that the Buddha actually knew about this. Uh, and then the question arises, well, how did he know about this? Uh, but uh, yeah, anyway, I'm not going to go too much into that. It's kind of interesting, but a bit of a sidetrack maybe. All right, Dean Arjun Ramali, good evening. Thank you for coming for the Q&A tonight. Uh, what would be the words of advice? For me, I have been told on several occasions where I am too hard on myself by Dhamma teachers uh, in the way I do my duties and tasks. Uh, I am okay with kindness and not much ill will to others, uh, but not really able to do so for myself. Uh, um, all right, so uh, how to have more kindness towards yourself? Uh, um, uh, usually it goes together, yeah? So if you're able to be truly kind to others, usually it comes along and you'll be kind to yourself as well. Usually yeah, they arrive together. So the more, you, if you find it easy to be kind to others, then continue with that kindness to others. Uh, because uh, we are all human beings. Uh, and if you're able to perceive other people in such a way that you give rise to kindness to them, uh, you will ultimately see yourself in that way as well, because you are just a being, just like everyone else. Uh, we cannot kind of separate ourselves out. Uh, yeah? It's a universal experience of other beings and human beings. Uh, and so just keep on being, being kind to others and do the right thing, but also mentally as well. Yeah? Don't judge others. Uh, have compassion for them. Uh, understand, you know, have a sense of metta, all of these kind of things. Uh, and as you have that for others, it will come to you as well. Uh, how can we always have compassion for others? Uh, and the answer is uh, to have metta, it's often just to understand that we are not really in charge of our lives, right? Uh, we come from this unknown past. Uh, we have been conditioned by all kinds of things in the past, in this life, in past life, and all kinds of things. Uh, and the person we are now is the sum total of all that conditioning in the past. Uh, so how much freedom do you have? Uh, you are trapped by your past. You are trapped by all of these things coming together. And if you have, no f if you have very little freedom... Uh, yeah, that means that you uh, do things because of that conditioning and not because you really want to do so very often. Uh. And so for that reason, have compassion for yourself. Uh. Understand how you too are trapped by the past, uh, trapped by the past conditioning, trapped by what is happening in this life, uh, trapped by things in the past life. Uh. 
And the more you understand that you are trapped by these things, uh, your personality is a kind of trap. Uh, yeah, instead of being proud of your personality, uh, be careful of that personality because it is a trap. Uh, and develop your personality in a new way, in a new direction. Uh, yeah? And as your personality becomes more purified, uh, then it becomes a positive force uh, because it allows you to practice the Dhamma in the right way. Uh. And then you have more compassion for yourself. Uh. You know, one of the important things on the Dhamma path is because we set the bar very high uh, and we want to be as perfect as we possibly can, uh, it is very easy to be hard on ourselves because we don't reach that standard where we would like to be. Uh. But don't be hard on yourself. Uh, remember that the reason why you can't reach that standard is not because of you. Uh, yeah? It is because of your conditioning. Uh, it's because of your past. Uh, things are conspiring against you. Uh, all these causes and conditions making you do things uh, that you would rather not do. Uh, but it's not really your fault. Uh, yeah? It is the fault of causes and conditions. And you can't really blame causes and conditions. Yeah? Bad causes and conditions doesn't really work. Uh, so you stop blaming anyone once you see that. Uh, and then you have compassion for yourself. Uh, I'm trapped by these things, for goodness sake. Uh, I was born into the world with all this baggage. Uh, yeah, and now I'm trapped by it. Uh, and so then when you have compassion for yourself, uh, that non-judgmental attitude allows you to look at yourself in a new way. Instead of looking at yourself with judgment, the moment you judge yourself, uh, it is very hard to see yourself clearly because the judgment is a kind of bias. Uh, and the moment you are biased, you can't really see clearly what is going on. You will blame yourself rather than really looking at the cause and conditions. So stop blaming yourself. That is already very completely, utterly useless on the Buddhist path. Yeah? We think that if we blame ourselves, we become better. No, we become worse if we blame ourselves. Don't blame yourself. Have a clear mind. Look at what is going on. How come I'm doing this? Why do I get upset in the presence of this person? What is the problem? What is the issue here? And then when you are cool about it and you see it with a clear mind what is going on, then you can make a corrective measure. Then you can take things in a new direction because you actually see what the causes are. You see what the habits are. You see the problem. And when you deal with the problem, you're dealing with the underlying issues, then you can change. Okay, I'm upset with this person because they are hurting me but are they really hurting me? Or are they just running on this program from the past? Why are they doing this? Do I really need to get upset? They, if they do bad things to me, they are making bad karma. Maybe I should have compassion for them if they're making bad karma. Maybe I should help them to see their ways. Not now, but at some point down the track. Yeah. And you turn the table around. Instead of being so hard on yourself and hard on others. Uh, yeah? You start to have compassion for everyone in the world because you understand we're all trapped in the same way. Uh, and uh, this is very beautiful when this, start, when this works yeah? because uh, it means that you don't really become angry anymore in the world. Uh, you realize anger is just this very counterproductive thing. Uh, all it does is stop you from being able to uh, deal with people, deal with yourself in a constructive way. Uh, and it keeps you entrapped. It keeps you stuck in this world because you're just repeating this pattern, repeating these habits from the past again and again and again instead of stepping back and then starting to move out of these things. So don't never judge yourself. Have self-compassion. Self-compassion is a beautiful thing. Wow, I'm suffering. Is there anyone here who has no suffering? We all have a bit of suffering, right? And because you have suffering, have compassion for yourself. It's not really your fault. You've just kind of ended up like this somehow. We don't really know. 
it's kind of weird. Sometimes it feels like we're making all these decisions in the life. Yeah? It feels like, okay, now I've got to make a decision. And it feels like you are making that decision. Huh? But when you look back on your life, uh, if I look back on what I did 30 years ago, at that time it felt like a decision. But when I look back, it doesn't look like a decision anymore. It looks like this pattern. It looks like all these things coming together. It looks like things kind of just happening because of cause and conditions. Uh, when you look at things from a distance, uh, it looks like you have far less agency uh, than what it feels like in the moment. Uh, and you can start to see the overall causal sequence of things in your life. Uh. So this is how you do it. I, I heard something quite uh, nice uh, fairly recently. Uh, and this was, uh, I was back in Norway. And, I, and there was this, this uh, um, executive uh, and he, he said something that was very interesting. I didn't know there were any wise executives in Norway, but this person actually said something wise. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. Eh? <laughs> and what he, he said was that in my company, the way that I look at the employees, uh, I always look at everyone in this as, you know, as doing their best. Everyone is doing their best. That is how I look at my employees. And I thought, wow, that's really Nice, yeah, that is such a beautiful way of thinking about the people around you. Everyone is doing their best. And, if you, and that changes your entire attitude to the situation. If you know that everyone is doing their best, what you know is that you know that people are trapped by the circumstances. If they're, whatever they're doing, if they're lazy, whatever it might be, that is the condition they're in, and they can't really change it at the time. If you get angry with them, maybe they can change a little bit out of fear, but it's not going to be a lasting change. It's only going to be a kind of superficial thing anyway. It's not really going to work. The problem is still going to be there. So once you see other people as doing their best, yeah, and as trapped in the circumstances, you start to look at the situation in a very different way. Instead of getting upset with people for being lazy, not doing their work, you start to ask yourself, well, what are the cause and conditions that may make people do their best? Yeah? How do I get the most out of people in this particular situation? And so you have to encourage them in the right way. Yeah? You have to show them that whatever they're doing will lead to happiness for themselves and others. It will lead to good benefits in the future. Yeah? Yeah, it will lead to something positive. And if you can show people that this is a positive thing, if you can motivate people in the right way, that is where uh, the kind of the good workers come out of. Not by being angry with them or being upset with them, uh, because that is kind of a negative kind of motivation that never really has any effect in the long run. Uh. So you understand how to motivate people. Vishen uh. Brahm had this beautiful saying that you have, uh, that he always that he talk, used to talk about in the old, I'm not sure if he had talked about it for a while, uh, but this was, I think, some piece of advice from that very, one of those famous um, books in the Chinese uh, ancient Chinese culture, the uh, art of war, whatever it is called. Uh, and according to, I don't know if this is true, but anyway, that's what he, <laughs> what he says uh, was in that book, and quite possibly it is. Uh, but this is the story of the, uh, uh, of the general who had perfect, uh, uh, you know, he got all the soldiers to do exactly what he wanted all the time. The discipline in his army was perfect. Uh, then he was asked, how do you get such good discipline in the army? No one else is able to have this. Yeah? There's always some scallywags around people doing the wrong thing or whatever. How do you do it? And his answer was kind of really an enigmatic answer. The reason I get perfect discipline in the army is because I only ask the soldiers to do what they want. <laughs> right? And this is exactly the same thing with this person who motivates his people in the company. You have to make people want 
that which the company needs to get done. You need to make the soldiers want to do the right thing in the army. And when you make people want that, then everything happens by itself. And so the trick is to motivate people. The trick is to give the right kind of incentives. The trick in Buddhism is to say that, well, the reason why Buddhism is so powerful is because it is about the meaning of life. If you want to find the meaning of life, you are on the right track. If you want to find the highest happiness, if you want to overcome suffering, this is what you should be doing. Forget about everything else. And if you can prove that, if you can show that to people, then the motivation comes back, then the motivation is automatic. That's why you come back every year, right? Because you know that there's some truth to that. You have been motivated in the right way. You have understood that there's some truth to that. And so you come by yourself. You don't even have to ask. In fact, we have to say, no, too many, stay back. <laughs> yeah, and this is, that's a really good sign. There's something very beautiful about that. And this is the idea of motivating people in, the, in, the, in a positive way here. And then you are. I have no idea what the question is anymore, but anyway, that's <laughs> So, um, yeah. Anyway, let's move on to the next one. Oh, it's getting a bit late already. Gee, okay, so we'll better move on a little bit. Ajahn, there are many spider webs in my room, on the ceilings and under the chairs. <laughs> Should I be considerate and clean them up for the next retreatings, or should I be compassionate and leave the spider webs alone? <laughs> Is it bad karma if I destroy the home of the spiders? Thank you. By the way, uh, by the way, there are spiders also. There. Okay, whatever. So. Um, uh, it doesn't matter. Yeah? What matters is that you have a good intention. So if you let the spiders be, do that out of good intention. If you remove them out of compassion for the next person, do that out of right intention. Either way is actually okay. What matters is why you do these kind of things. Yeah? So you can, either way can be compassionate, either way can be ill will. Yeah? If you think, yeah, I'm going to destroy the spider web, that's a bad idea. Don't think like that. Think, do it because you are going to be compassionate to the next person. Then it's okay. Yeah? Spiders are, you know, sometimes that's the life of a spider. You get your homes destroyed, and that's kind of unfortunate. But uh, take the spider out with kindness. Yeah? So the spider, at least, is not kind of hurt. Yeah? And sometimes I remove spiders from my walking path. We have these red-back spiders who are poisonous. You don't really want to be bitten by them. And sometimes I grab them with my broom, and I take them away. And I'm sure the spider is not happy, but that's what, I'm, what I do anyway. So that's, I think that's okay. It's a small little thing. And you're doing it out of compassion for someone else, then it's okay. If you leave it out of compassion for the spider, that's also okay. Either one is okay. So just uh, ask yourself where you're coming from. <clears throat> I, when I watch my breath, it traces a circular path going round and round, following the breath, going in and out. I find following it round path very peaceful. Is it okay? It is okay. <laughs> or must I focus on one spot, just like the simile of the saw in the Vasudhi Malgai? You don't have to follow one spot. The Buddha doesn't say you have to follow one spot. Uh, one spot is, uh, this is one of the uh, kind of traditional ways of doing Buddhism. What it says in the suttas is that you, Parimukkang uh, Satting uh, Upatapetva, having established it, uh, kind of parimukka, no one knows exactly what it means. It means like something like in front of you or something like that, in the here and now or something. Not entirely clear what it means. 
but uh, the, well, the point is just that you are aware of something. You don't even have to watch the breath at all. Yeah? Meditation is really about being present. Uh, and if you can be present, that's great. And then you want to, the idea is that presence comes first, and then comes the narrowing down of the object over time. Uh, so usually it's good not to be too narrowed down from the very beginning, because the mind is, takes time for the mind to become peaceful and narrow down the focus. Uh, so start off with a general awareness of the breath, yeah? The breath coming in, the, kind of the whole breath. Uh, you don't really know where it is. You just know the breath is going in, in, out. Yeah, you know that much. It doesn't matter where it is. Uh, you just know it's going in and out. Uh, then as you become more peaceful, as the meditation works, uh, the, tense, the focus tends to become more narrow all by itself. You don't have to really do anything here. So just stay with the breath and see what happens, uh, if you try too hard to focus on one particular point, you're probably doing the wrong thing already yeah, because it means that you're using too much willpower on it. Uh. So just do whatever feels easy, whatever relaxes you, whatever feels natural, uh, and then you're going to be okay. If you really want to stay with one point that works for you, that is also good. Uh. But to look at the qualities of the mind, that is the more important thing here. Yeah. Are you at ease? Uh, are you enjoying it? Etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Jeez, many questions left, actually. <laughs> All right, I'm just going to carry on. So if you get fed up, you are allowed to leave. I'm not going to put a red mark against your name or anything like that. So you are... <laughs> Dear Ajahn Ramali, Ajahn Brahm said, okay, so now okay, he said, uh, twist, twisted your arm to <laughs> answer your questions tonight. Thank you. I hope your arm isn't sore. Now, Ajahn Brahm has a very nice way of twisting your arm, so it's, uh, it's all right. Uh, I visited Ajahn Ganha a few months ago, and he advised to first be a monk at home, then be a monk in the monastery. By be a monk, he explicitly said he meant stream-winning and beyond. <laughs> okay, as laypersons, we aren't subject to the Vinaya, which was the Buddha's training program. How would you advise us lay people to practice practice? Uh, we optimize our conditions from stream winning and for stream winning and beyond, even if we are not practicing vinaya. Um, all right. So um, it's not about the vinaya. Yeah, the vinaya is just a set of rules, uh, and uh, it's not about the set of rules that, that that really matters. The reason one one of the reasons why the monastics have all of these rules uh, is also because of giving rise to faith and confidence in the world around. There's many, many reasons why those rules are there. In fact, the Buddha lays down ten reasons why he established the rules of the Vinaya. Only one is to restrain the defilements. Many others have all kinds of reasons why they are there. So what matters in your life is not whether you're following rules or not. What matters is whether you are pure in your conduct. That is what matters. Are you kind? Are you avoiding doing the bad things? That is what is important. Yeah? So don't worry so much about the rules. One of the um, interesting things that was, uh, that was unearthed by Venerable Analayo during his, uh, some of his comparative studies of the Majjhimanikaya, he compares, he really, he's really good at comparing the suttas because he's this language genius. So he can read ancient Chinese, he can read Tibetan, he can read Pali, Sanskrit, German, French, English, Russian. Uh, it's just extraordinary. I don't know how he does it, but that's kind of uh, what he's like. Yeah. And uh, so what, one of the things that he discovered that was very interesting, this was the suit as in the Majjhima Nikaya, usually 
uh, one of the ways that the Buddha teaches is what is called the gradual training. Uh, and the gradual training is one of my favorite teachings because it lays out the whole path of training in Buddhism. Uh, and it starts off with the right view of the Buddha arising in the world, and it ends up with a person becoming arahant. Uh, and of course, a very important part of that training is the training in morality, right? Uh, and that training in morality in the Pali Sutta, as is often expressed in this way that you train in the rules of the Patimoka, you train in the rule of the Vinaya, and you take, you know, you, uh, you see danger in the slightest fault, and all of these kind of things. Uh, but in the ch- tra- translations into China, ancient Chinese, uh, very often it doesn't have the Patimoka, it just talks about being pure in, uh, uh, in body, speech, and mind instead, uh, yeah? having good conduct in body, speech, and mind. Uh. And so these are equivalent, yeah? it's the, they're roughly the same, except that the purity in body, speech, and mind is actually broader than the Patimoka rules. So you are better off following being pure in body, speech, and mind than you are in following the Patimoka rules, because the Patimoka rules can be circumvented. <laughs> yeah, the Patimoka rules have loopholes, because it is like a legal structure. It's like people trying to find loopholes in the law. There's always loopholes in the law. Yeah? How can I get away by not pay, paying taxes? Yeah? How can I minimize my taxing? How can I do t- tax planning, these kind of things? Yeah? There's always loopholes. And there's always loopholes in any kind of legal structure. Yeah? And apparently there's a, there's a saying in Burma that someone who knows the vinya well, uh, they can kill a chicken without incurring an offense. Uh. <laughs> Actually, there are even worse things you can do yeah, without incurring an offense, according to some of these uh, texts, because legal suitors, because there are legal structures. Uh. So um, don't worry about that. Just practice kindness. Just practice what is right. Practice purity. Don't worry about stream winning. I don't know what he meant by that. Uh, it's, uh, I think if, uh, if everyone waited uh, till, until they become a stream winner before they become a monastic, I don't think we would have many monastics in the world, to be honest with you. I don't know how many <laughs> lay stream winners there are in the world, but I think very, very, very few. So uh, I would uh, say that uh, do your very best, uh, and then if you ever want or you feel a certain desire or attraction to monastic life, then try it out. Yeah? Come and stay in the monastery for a while uh, and see what happens. Uh, and if you enjoy it, uh, then uh, carry on or go back, do whatever, and see what happens. <coughs> All right. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, I hope your rains retreat has been blissful. Can you kindly share with us any insightful moments from your rains retreat? Uh, thank you. <laughs> Uh, insightful moments from my rains retreat. Uh, um, it's just uh, the uh, you know the insights are always kind of the uh, they are the same. Yeah, they are the same, and sometimes they go become deeper, and sometimes they uh, uh, become more powerful because they come deeper. Uh, but the things, many of the things, are basically the same. Uh, you just see it in a deeper way. Uh, yeah, the importance of uh, living well, the importance of kind of steering your mind in the right direction. Uh, the importance, how you know, what I was just saying before about the perceptions being the drivers of your thoughts, uh, it becomes very clear when your mind becomes peaceful. You can see all of these things much more clearly on retreat, uh, yeah, and then you are reminded of the importance of developing perceptions. Uh, and this is one of the things that we can always do. We can develop our perceptions more. Uh, sometimes people wonder what to do. You're going to, on a nine-day retreat, or you're going on a three-day, three-month retreat, or a three-year retreat, or whatever. Uh, 
what do I do all the time? I can't wash my breath all the time. Well, one of the things you can do is to develop your perceptions, develop your view, start learning to look at the world in a way that aligns with the way the Buddha looked at the world. Yeah? And this becomes very, very clear when you are on retreat for a long time, how important it is. And it's incredibly supportive for meditation. Because those views of the world, the way of looking at the world that the Buddha saw, actually makes you give things up. And when you give things up, then it becomes much easier to meditate. Because what stands in the way between you and meditation is your holding on to things. The holding on to things in the world. So if the more you understand that the things in the world are not really worthwhile holding on to, the more you develop your perception in that way, giving up the things of the world by contemplating death, contemplating impermanence, whatever it is, the easier the meditation becomes. Or contemplating just simple things like compassion. Compassion is also like a contemplation exercise. Yeah? Why we should have compassion in the world? Seeing the suffering in the world, seeing the problems, having compassion for people who are difficult, purifying our minds from these kind of defilements that are there and underlying, maybe blocking our progress a little bit. Yeah, seeing these things and then developing your mind in that direction. It's something we can always do. And as we do that, and as you kind of get that right view more at the very basic level of perception, it becomes very powerful for your meditation practice. So these are the kind of, uh, these are the kind of uh, insights that you kind of get. It becomes kind of clearer and clearer over time. Yeah? The importance of kindness, uh, the importance of never really having any moment of ill will. Uh, and when you see that, it becomes like this feeling that I can't afford uh, to be angry with anyone. Why would I want to be angry with anyone? Uh, what, what, who does that help? This doesn't help the other person, it doesn't help me. So it's kind of madness. Uh, so stop, being, stop having ill will uh, yeah, and uh, actually sort of lodging that at the back of your mind in a powerful way. So you are reminded of this. You carry this in your mind all the time. Uh. If you come to a road in Singapore, uh, yeah, do you just walk into the road uh, or do you look left and right first of all? Uh? Doesn't anyone just walk into the road without looking? Uh? No, right? Why is that? Because you have a very strong mindfulness that when you come to a road, uh, you should look uh, yeah, because you know it's dangerous. Uh. Now, every time you open your mouth, it's like coming to a road. Yeah, because there's a danger of kind of doing something bad. Yeah, and the bad thought, the bad speech, the bad action is much more dangerous than the cars on the road. Yeah, so you should have much more mindfulness about your bad speech, about your bad actions, than about the cars on that road. And yet, somehow, we are really frightened of the cars, but we're not so frightened of bad thoughts sometimes. Yeah. And this is the thing here you come to that road. You come to the point when you're about to think something here and you have enough awareness to realize that my perception now is such uh, that my thoughts are going to be bad. Uh, How can I change my perception? uh, How can I move this around in a different way? uh, And then it becomes even more more clear to you, uh, more lodged in your mind of what what you have to do. uh. Okay. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, what is your favorite food? <laughs> what is Ajahn Brahm's favorite food with metta? Yeah, well, that, you know, that's a good, nice try, but. <laughs> 
uh, I, what, uh, not sure what is, the, what is the kind of the right answer to that question. I'm not sure what the right answer is, uh, but uh, we, I think with Ajahn Brahm, you have some idea, is that right? Uh, you, I, <laughs> you can imagine, imagine English food, right? Uh, Ajahn Brahm is the kind of person, he's, basically he likes English food, yeah? so whatever is English food, not, not modern English food, but old-fashioned English food, uh, what they ate back in the 1970s. Yeah? Not the health food, but the ordinary kind of plain English food back from the 1970s. That's kind of where you are, where he is. He hasn't changed at all. This is one of the things about Ajahn Brahm. He thinks that he is really English because he likes English food, but he actually likes the English food from the 1970s. Yeah. <laughs> So all the other English people have moved on a long time ago. Ajahn Brahm is stuck in the past. That's kind of Ajahn Brahm for you. Yeah. So you have to go and find some ancient recipes online, and then you can maybe figure out what Ajahn Brahm likes. That's basically what he is like. He's kind of, uh, this is one of the beautiful things about uh, someone like Ajahn Brahm, is that uh, instead of trying out new things, uh, they stay with what they know works for them already. Uh. Ajahn Brahm is not really interested in the sensory world. Uh, to actually always try out new things, uh, to check out new entertainment, try out new food or whatever, you have to be interested in the sensory world, right? Uh, the sensory world has to somehow be exciting to you. I'm going to try this kind of food, I'm going to travel here, I'm going to travel there. But if the sensory world is not interesting, uh, you just stay with the tried and trusted. Uh, you stay with the things that you know are going to work for you. Uh, and that is what someone like Ajahn Brahm does. Uh, yeah? So he stays with it. Uh, I'm not going to say, ha. <laughs> but you have a rough idea what he, what he likes, yeah? because he's, uh, it's nice to offer him what he likes. Yeah? One of the things about uh, uh, the uh, kind of making merit uh, is about kind of finding out yeah? and a little bit about what the person likes, uh, being observant, uh, trying to know. Yeah? This is about kindness in life. Uh, if you have someone that you want to be kind to, and we should be kind to everyone, uh, yeah? look at what they want. Uh, what do they like? Not what I think they should have, but what do they actually like? How do you like your tea? With condensed milk, I think it's a bad idea, but okay, I'll give it to you anyway. Yeah? <laughs> because it's obviously very unhealthy. Actually, that's what Ajahn Ram likes, tea with condensed milk. Yeah, that's kind of his, his favorite, one of his favorite ones. Yeah. Sorry? Really? Really? That's, he, maybe he's getting more healthy. That's, kind of, that's, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. You must have done something to him. I don't know what you've done, but that's, uh, that's uh, pretty, pretty impressive. Uh, so, uh, so this is a general kind of piece of advice, is that just to be observant, uh, and uh, that is kind of a very important part of kindness, is actually uh, being able to support people in that way. Uh. So, um, all right. I'm gonna, there's a few more questions left. I'm going to finish off, uh, because there's only one night, so we're going to see what happens. So, dear Ajahn Ramali, so I'm happy to have you present on our retreat. Thank you for being here. How do we practice Nibida according to the art of disappearing? This means disengagement from the world uh, while still maintaining compassion and helping others. Uh, so um, don't try too hard to disengage from the world. Yeah? Nibida is a very high thing in the suttas. Uh, it's a disengagement that happens, and it is an automatic consequence uh, of seeing things. Uh, yeah? You see the dukkha, and then you disengage automatically. Yeah? So disengagement is not something that you should try too hard. What you should do instead is try to develop the right view and develop the path in the right way. And as you do that, there will be a little bit of disengagement happening automatically. Yeah? When you start to see that the world actually isn't that interesting, when you start to see the problems in the world and you realize actually the world is pretty yucky place. Yeah, it is not it's so incredibly unreliable. So 
utterly uncertain. Don't know what it's going to do next. And because you don't know what it's going to do next, it's crazy to hold on to it. That's what we do. We hold on to the world. We take refuge in the world. Every time you watch the news, every time you get disappointed with what's happening in the world, you know you have taken refuge in the wrong place. That's why you get disappointed. If you hadn't taken refuge in that world, you wouldn't care less whether you know, there's war or not. It wouldn't matter to you. So you start to understand, actually the world is the wrong place to take refuge. I need to take refuge in this path of practice, in the Dhamma, in developing good qualities. And when you take refuge in that, yeah, then gradually things start to change. And the, kind of the disenchantment with the world, the disinterest in the world, happens gradually stage by stage. So don't try to do it. Don't make it happen. And if it comes automatically by itself, then you will know how to engage in the right way. Because it happens by itself, it happens naturally, you will feel what is the right way to engage. So you get a bit of disenchantment with the world, but you understand that that disenchantment in the world is actually the same as having compassion for others. Because the reason why you're disenchanted with the world is you understand the troubles in the world. And when you understand the troubles in the world and you know that people are attached to that world, you have compassion for them because you know that they are heading for suffering, because they are attached to something that is problematic. So actually that disenchantment with the world leads to more compassion for beings because you understand more about their suffering. Yeah. So that doesn't mean that you are no longer engaged. It means that you help them in a better way because now you understand what is going on. This is really the right, this is actually a very positive thing. And this is why someone like the Buddha is able to give the highest kind of uh, uh, support. Yeah? The support which actually really matters, uh, which really makes a difference, uh, and where suffering can really be overcome. So the right kind of nibbida, the right kind of disengagement, uh, actually leads to more uh, positive qualities, more engagement in the right kind of, not necessarily more engagement, uh, but the right kind of engagement. Uh, that is a, a positive thing, yeah. Hello, Arjan. Good to see you again. In your opinion, what would constitute a right way of learning for a Buddhist? Uh, is a funeral wake with chanting and rituals necessary? Or leave, of leaving for a Buddhist. Is that what I mean? Leaving. Uh, or one can simply hear a quiet, go- have a quiet going off, just cremation ashes scattered uh, at the garden. Uh, thank you, Alan. Um, yeah, I, uh, it is nice. I think the most important thing is not necessarily the chanting and all the rituals. Uh, uh, what matters is that we do something good for the departed. Uh, yeah? uh, the Buddha always talks about the departed being able to perceive what we are doing for them. If they are close family members, they can see what we are doing. So do something good in the name of the departed. Yeah? Give to some kind of charitable cause. Give to the monast- give to a monastery. Give to whatever it is. It doesn't have, doesn't have to be Buddhist. Do something good and share the kindness of your actions with, your, yeah, with the departed. Yeah? 
do some forgiveness because if they are still around, they may be able to kind of feel the forgiveness that you give them. You grant them forgiveness and also ask forgiveness in return because we have always done little things that are painful in our life. This is the nature of human relationships. There's always painful things going on. And if they are around and if they are still there, they will be able to feel that forgiveness and they will be able to give forgiveness in return. And then you can move on with an easy heart into your new existence as a consequence. So... um, uh, so these are the really important things. These are the Dhamma kind of things. Uh, so uh, the idea with the chanting is really to remember the Dhamma. Yeah? So if we do the chanting in the right way, it allows us to remember the Dhamma. So we can maybe do chanting like the Metta Sutta and maybe do it in English so you can understand what it means rather than doing it in Pali. No one understands anything. Yeah? And, then, uh, and then you have some nice thoughts at the same time because you are chanting something meaningful and you wish them well. And they feel, oh, they're wishing me well. And bang, they get really one devaloka as a consequence. Uh, that's kind of nice, nice idea. So do make it meaningful. Though. It is not about the ritual. It is about rituals are okay, but make the rituals meaningful and then you're doing the right thing here. Yeah. Okay, two questions left, so I'm going to finish off. Dear Adan, after the breath has become fine and quite still, uh, why do I get a falling into myself sensation that will cause me to stop meditation? Uh, Is this a normal hurdle in the progression? Uh, um, It depends uh, what it is, yeah? The falling into into myself, the falling inwards can be that you feel more distance uh, to the five senses, uh, it is like your hearing is disappearing a little bit. You're kind of going inwards in a sense. And if it is that kind of going inwards where the world is kind of feeling further away, then it may very well be a positive thing. Yeah. But again, the way that you know if it is a positive thing or not is how does it feel? Does it feel pleasant? The falling into yourself where you let go of the world outside should feel like a very positive thing. Yeah. You're letting go of something burdensome. You're getting go of dukkha. You're letting go of something which actually isn't very nice. That is the idea here, right? So if it feels good and if it has a positive consequence, then the falling inwards is great. But if it feels, doesn't feel that, then it might be something else. So check out what it feels like. Maybe there could also be a little bit of fear. Maybe that's kind of what, what is going on here. And that it stops the meditation because you feel that you are losing contact with something. And what you have to do then, if it is fear that is stopping you, but actually there's a positive thing, what you have to do is you just have to do it again and again and to learn that experience and to learn to deal with it and to see the positive part of it. And as you do that, there will come a point when you will enjoy that because you know it is something very positive and delightful yeah, it is. Uh, many things in life are like that. Uh, even the things that are good can be fearful because they are different and unusual for us. Uh, even things that are more greater happiness, uh, we can be afraid of that greater happiness because we have to let go of something we are familiar with. Uh, it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. We should do it because ultimately that will feel familiar. It will feel ordinary, uh, and then we'll be very happy we did it. Uh, but uh, it may take a bit of time to get used to. That's all. Uh, All right, so we have come to the last question for tonight. Actually, there's no such thing as last question. Forget about that one. That was uh, was completely wrong. There's always more questions. Uh, But um, (laughs) so, dear Ajahn Brahmali, Ajahn Brahm, not quite sure who is going to answer this. I can see. So anyway, this is uh, 
This is the answer. So uh, this is the question, rather. Uh, real love is to give. This is very virtuous. However, most would always instead, uh, instead of only giving, would ask for exchange, a deal. Is this ego or wanting the other party to learn? Only giving uh, does not reciprocate uh, and result in no understanding and could also be tiring uh, or if just giving, maybe no patience. Okay, so what are you saying here? Let me. <laughs> um, yeah. So one of the uh, the things about the spiritual path, and this is about all aspects of the spiritual path, uh, it is a learning experience, right? Gradually, you learn how to uh, to do things in the right way. And uh, whether there is a little bit of the idea of the deal in the beginning when you start giving, that's okay. Yeah? Don't expect to be perfect straight away. Don't kind of try to kind of be the uh, perfect Buddhist because you're going to fail if you do that. So a little bit of deal is okay. So give, expect something in return, it is fine. You know, some, but the ideal is very high. The ideal is to give without really expecting in anything in return because you know that the outcome of giving is very positive. And the Buddha says in the suttas that the ideal way to give is to do it as an ornament for the mind. Yeah? An ornament for the mind is the idea that the mind becomes beautiful, the mind becomes bright, the mind becomes shining if you do acts of virtue and acts of kindness. So you know that this is good. You don't actually need to ask anyone. You don't need to ask anything in return. Even if the recipient is upset with you for giving them something, right? They show no gratitude whatsoever. You just shrug your shoulders. It doesn't really matter. And this is the beautiful way of giving when we don't really ask for anything in return. And we don't really care what the recipient even says. But this is a very high way of giving. And it's a very difficult thing to do. Because uh, we, are, we ex- usually expect people to not at least not be upset with us when we give, right? Uh, maybe show a bit of gratitude. Uh, but, uh, so that is a very, a very high standard, a very high bar to clear. But gradually you move in that direction. Uh, gradually you come to understand that the power of giving uh, is very often there. It is the, the effect it has on the giver himself or herself uh, that really is the power of giving. Uh, you start giving in the right way. Uh, and if someone appreciates it, great. If they don't appreciate it, okay, that's to be expected sometimes. It doesn't matter so much. You know that you have done the right thing anyway. And then gradually you learn to do it in this, this kind of way. Generosity is very powerful. And I would say when we talk about being kind, a very important part of that is the idea of generosity. And generosity, you can kind of make that a part of so many aspects of your life. You can be generous in so many small ways, in so many large ways, or whatever it is. And always be generous if you have the opportunity. There are some very beautiful words that are used in the idea of generosity. And some of the ideas, some of the words that are used to explain generosity in the suttas, they are words that are also found in the Third Noble Truth. The third noble truth is about the end of suffering. Right? And the end of suffering is explained in the suttas as the giving up of the craving. And some of the words that are used there are chaga. Yeah, chaga means kind of letting go, giving up. Muti, which is like liberation or freedom, yeah? freeing, freeing something. Patinisagga, which also is like giving up. And what you find is that when you talk about the idea of generosity, you find the same words in the act of generosity as you find in the third noble truth, which has to do with Nibbana. 
And so what that means is that the idea of generosity, the idea of giving what is done in the right way, is very is similar in a certain way to the idea of achieving Nibbana, you know, achieving the end of craving. That's kind of fascinating. So when we are giving, we're doing something similar as we're doing on the very end of the path. Why is that? Well, the reason is because when you are given, you're letting go of something which is yours, right? That's exactly what giving is. You're giving up something which is yours, whether it's a material thing, whether it's your time or whatever it is. It is something that is yours that you're giving up. And the achievement of Nibbana, the achievement of the very end of the path, is a complete giving up of what is yours. It's the ending of all ideas of mine and me or whatever it is. So by doing generosity, we're actually doing little Nibbana, if you want to do a little nibbana, <laughs> yeah, do generosity. Yeah. And this is kind of awesome when you think about it, yeah, because it means that, that kind of mental state that you have when you're generous to someone else, uh, when you give something, that feeling you have of generosity, the feeling of giving, yeah, yeah it is somehow related to the idea of the very end of the path. Uh, that is very interesting. So you have the words, yeah, chaga, letting go, is also found. It is an aspect of giving, also found in the third noble truth. Uh, mutti, uh, mutti chaga is like uh, giving liberally, freely, freely giving, right? Uh, patinisaga, vosaga is the word found in the, uh, uh, in the act of giving. Vosaga means to let go of things. Uh, patinisaga means the same thing here. So the same kind of vocabulary here. So uh, don't uh, underestimate the power of giving here. Don't set the bar too high. Start in simple ways and see what happens. Yeah, okay, if you, you want to have something in return. Over time, you purify that. Over time, you change and you learn about the act of giving in itself. It's beautiful regardless of what happens. Give anonymously. Give to someone you might never meet. Give to a beggar on the street. There's something very beautiful about giving to a beggar on the street because you will ne- probably never see this person again. And when you never see the person again, there is no deal anymore. There's no transaction. That beggar will not never give you anything in return. You just give to someone, knowing that you will make someone happy, knowing that you're doing something good. So do some of those non-transactional givings. And when you do non-transactional givings, there's a greater purity going on there. Oh, wow. <laughs> Okay, excellent everyone. So very nice to see you all again. So uh, keep on enjoying yourself one last day uh, and uh, see what happens. uh, And then enjoy on Sunday we will have the Katina ceremony. So we'll see you then. uh, Otherwise we'll see you back in Singapore. So let's just do the... um, I don't know what you do at this point. Let's do some Arahang Samasambudo together to finish the evening maybe. Uh, All right.